Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, each time we release the kids out of here, I uh, find myself both sad and joyful at the same time. I'm always sad to, to hear them go, but always joyful at how many kids we have in this body. So it's such an encouragement. Um, this morning, we are going to be in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Mark 7, 1 through 23, and the title of this sermon is Clean Hands and Filthy Hearts. Um, It's on page 842 in the Pew Bibles in front of you if you're following along there. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Well, the last two weeks in the book of Mark, we've seen some miraculous things. We've seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus people with just five loaves and two fish, showing us that he's the good shepherd who satisfyingly feeds his sheep. Uh, We saw him walk on water, revealing himself to be the God of Job 9, Exodus 33, and 1 Kings 19. He's the God who sees and the God who rescues. He's gracious and patient even with hard-hearted disciples, praise the Lord. But this week, we'll move from the miraculous to what some would call the mundane in a discussion about washing hands. Nonetheless, this section of Mark, mundane though it might seem, is no less important than the miraculous. In fact, it helps us further define the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Because in this text... Jesus will answer two questions. Number one, how is someone defiled? And two, how is someone made clean? How is someone defiled and how is someone made clean? So let's dive into the text. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, 
Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. As we jump into this text, I want us to see that in this episode of Jesus's life, there are two competing views of cleanliness and godliness. In other words, there are two completely different views of salvation. Our text today gives a very clear portrait of the Pharisees' view and of Jesus' rejection of it. And so in light of that, I want to kind of walk us down two paths this morning. Point one, legalism, which we see in our text. And then point two, the gospel, or Jesus' view. So point one, legalism. Uh, just a heads up, 99% of today's sermon is actually going to be in point one, because our text today deals with legalism and Jesus' rejection of it. Uh, point two is actually going to be outside of today's text, and we'll kind of give the, the brief counterpoint to legalism in the gospel. So, what exactly is going on here in this text? Remember that uh, up to this point... Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repent and believe. He's done miracles. He's taught people. He's drawn crowds. And that hasn't escaped the view or the ire of the religious elite within Judaism. They've seen all of this going on. In fact, we've already seen Jesus clash with the Pharisees and the scribes in Mark chapter 2. Um, but here, in our text today, they've sent in the big guns. Well, look at verse 1. Now, these are, are, are the Pharisees and scribes from where? Jerusalem. Now, this is like saying the feds from Washington, D.C. showed up. The big boys. They mean business. And they're there to try to discredit Jesus. To catch him in some kind of a trap to embarrass him in public, in front of all of his followers. By the way, the scribes and Pharisees were often on opposite sides of arguments. But now, when it comes to opposing Jesus, they're unified. And right away, they get to work. It's lunchtime. Here we go, verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. Boom! We've got him now. His disciples don't wash their hands. Now, before you get too grossed out and kind of side with the Pharisees here, it's kind of gross, right? They don't wash their hands. This isn't about hygiene. I mean, 
This is what we all teach our kids, hopefully, right? Especially this year. Wash your hands. It's a good thing. But this isn't about Jesus pushing back against physical cleanliness here. It's something else. And Mark, knowing that he's writing to primarily a Gentile audience, realizes that he needs to explain some Jewish culture here. So insert verses 3 and 4. And a lot of your Bibles, you'll have this in parentheses. So this is kind of Mark explaining to his Gentile audience what's going on. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. That word wash uh, can be translated like take a bath even. Uh, And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. All right. So this isn't a hygiene thing, but it's a holding to the tradition of the elders thing. Well, what's that? Uh, In its most simple form, think of the tradition of of the elders as a fence. Uh, Within Judaism, there was the law of God. And rightly, they revered the law of God. This was, was and is a good thing, to revere the law of God. But what they would do is, they would take the law of God and the word of God and put traditions or fences around the law to make sure that no one even got close to breaking the law. And this resulted in the creation of all kinds of absurd rules. Like, on the Sabbath can't look in the mirror because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it, which might be considered working and not resting on the Sabbath. That was a real external law or or fence that they put in place. Or on the Sabbath day, you can only travel so far from home. So they would go out the day before and place different items from their home along the path so that they could walk so far and not really have left home, and not break their made-up law. They had laws, both written and oral, about all kinds of absurd things, complex lists and rituals of what you could and couldn't do in specific situations. And the Sabbath was just one topic that got fenced with tradition. In this written book of external law, known as the Mishnah, There were 186 pages of fences just dealing with cleanliness alone. 186 pages just on cleanliness. Side note, do you see what this says about their understanding of God as Father? In their view, God is just a distant lawmaker who just wants to burden their lives for no real reason. Contrast that with the disciples, who seemed to have childlike faith and related to God in close fellowship and freedom. How you live says something about how you view God. And the Pharisees had a particular view. So, what you have is a text like Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21 where priests are called to wash their hands and feet before entering the temple. The point of that was to show reverence and respect for a holy God. That's a good thing. 
And this wasn't because God was scared of catching their germs. It was a ritual that reminded priests and the people of God of God's character, that he was holy and that they were not. That was a good thing. But the Mishnah would take that text and add to it and require that all Jews perform these elaborate hand-washing rituals before every meal and actually take a bath after going to the market to wash off any sinfulness that they picked up from those pagan Gentiles in the market. We'll come back to this several times in this text, but here are a couple of questions. In their minds, in the Pharisees' minds, how does someone become dirty spiritually? Through something external, right? That's how someone becomes dirty, through something external, through something out there, rubbing shoulders with a Gentile in the marketplace. Second, how does someone become clean, according to them? Well, through obeying these made-up laws and performing these rituals. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You see how barbed that is? (laughs) First, sometimes a question isn't a question, but a statement. This is one of those times. They don't ask this question honestly. They're not coming to him innocently to be taught. They're making an accusation. Second, notice the pronouns here. Why do your disciples not fill in the blank? Parents, you know how this works, right? Shannon, your son just threw a milk bottle at my head at the dinner table. (laughs) The Pharisees and the scribes really don't care about the disciples' actions here as much as they care about leveling an accusation against Jesus himself. Jesus, why don't your disciples follow our rules? What they're really saying is, Jesus, why don't you follow our rules? So how does Jesus respond? With scripture. In verse 6, he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus calls them what they are, hypocrites. Ouch. In the ancient world, actors didn't wear makeup. Instead, they wore masks. That's what a hypocrite was, an actor disguised by a mask with their real personality and identity hidden from the watching world. That's what Jesus calls them. Jesus is saying... Look, all of this hand-washing and hand-wringing that you're doing is nothing more than a mask to disguise who you really are. You talk the talk. 
What comes from your mouth sounds honoring to God. But your heart is rotten. You're a hypocrite. And verse 7, I think, is the key verse for this entire section. It's what this whole story is actually about. He says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is all about worship. Vain worship. Empty worship. What Jesus is saying is this. All of your fence keeping. I'm not going to say law keeping here because law keeping is actually a good thing. And that's not what they're doing here. He says, all of your fence keeping. It's pointless. It's not true worship. It's hypocritical. Because it's not from the heart. You pretend to be near to God, but you're actually far from him. They were more concerned about themselves and how they appeared than about God. Also, it's very clear they placed tradition above scripture. Look at verse 8. Essentially, instead of God's word, they had elevated their own word and then called other people to follow or perish. This is... The Garden of Eden on repeat, right? Did God really say? Listen to me instead. You see how Jesus just takes that and rejects their view of sin and salvation out of hand. They think they're holy, but Jesus calls them hypocrites. You can almost picture them when Jesus says this, kind of gritting their teeth, fuming. Faces getting red, ready to let Jesus have it. And then Jesus gives them a clear example of what he's talking about. Uh, Unwilling just to, to make a vague accusation at them, Jesus gets specific, very specific. Look at verses 9 through 12. And he, Jesus, said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So, the kids have been learning catechisms recently. And uh, one of the, the questions, question 10, I believe it is, is what does God require in the fifth commandment? Answer, that we love and honor our father and mother, submitting to their godly discipline and direction. Yes, the fifth of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. That's the commandment of God. That's a good and right commandment. But they're rejecting that to hold to the tradition of men. What's their tradition of men? Well, it's this tradition that's talked about in the text of korban. But they're using it wrongly. Essentially, korban is a vow of money or possessions to God. Sounds good and godly, right? By itself, it could be. But 
Here's what they were doing. Normally, parents take care of their kids, providing for them as they grow up, meeting their needs until they're adults and self-sustaining. But there's a time when those roles reverse. Think about relatively poor parents whose children grow up and make good money. As the parents get older and need help, that's good and right that the children should help them. That'd be faithfully obeying the fifth commandment, the commandment of God, to honor a father and mother. But here's what the Pharisees and scribes were doing. They would piously devote all their possessions to God. Korban, almost like a tax shelter. Sorry, Mom, can't help you out. I know I have all of this money in the bank, but it's dedicated to the Lord. Sorry, I'll pray for you. Good luck. Ironically, this dedicated stuff could still be used by them personally. Do you see how wicked this was? They left the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. They violated the fifth commandment to keep Korban. Somehow, they still felt righteous for doing it. It's insane. Holiness is not about external man-made rituals and laws. Jesus exposes this truth for everyone there to see. Again, let's ask the question. For the Pharisees and the scribes, how is someone made clean spiritually? Well, their answer, through the commandments of men, through the tradition of men. Jesus says, no, it's about the heart. Then proceeds to answer the second question. How is someone defiled spiritually? Or how does someone become dirty spiritually? Well, verses 14 and 15. He huddles them all in close so that they can hear. Verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Pretty clear answer to our question, right? And a different answer than the Pharisees and the scribes give. Remember the question, how is someone made dirty spiritually? Their answer, something external. Touching somebody who's unclean. They become dirty by something separate or outside of themselves. Jesus' answer, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words... Your sin comes from within. But look at verse 17. <laughs> and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Jesus speaks plainly and straightforwardly, and his disciples are like, Jesus, what was up with the parable? <laughs> While Jesus often spoke in parables... This wasn't one of them, and his disciples didn't get it. 
I wonder how often Jesus just completely facepalmed when, when dealing with his disciples. Probably not often, because he's much more patient and gracious than we are. But look at verse 18. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? So he repeats himself. Verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Do you see his point? When you eat something, it goes into your stomach, not your heart. Which, in biblical language, the heart is the core of our being. Food doesn't stay in the core of your being passes through your digestive system, and then exits. The whole dietary system of Israel couldn't produce righteousness. It's not food that makes us unclean. Then Mark tells us, kind of a a parenthetical statement, that Jesus declared all foods clean. And this is interesting. Remember from the beginning of our study of Mark, who it was that gave Mark all of this information? Anyone remember? Peter, right? Well, what's Peter's background with this specific issue? (laughs) Not good. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, says this. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So even after hearing Jesus say it in our text, and then having this this vision given to him three times, Peter, starting his ministry to the Gentiles, he whiffs again on this same topic. Remember the book of Galatians. Paul has to rebuke Peter for pulling away from the Gentiles and not eating with them when the big guns came into town. Makes total sense that later in life, a convicted and repentant Peter would highlight this episode for Mark as he's telling him the story. And just remind him that Jesus himself declared all foods clean. So, if defilement doesn't come from the outside, where does it come from? Great question. Verses 20 through 23. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man... Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and they defile a person. So Jesus' answer is this. Food doesn't stain the core of your being, but the core of your being constantly pumps out defilement. Not eating certain foods or not ceremonially washing one's hands before a meal or not taking a bath to wash off Gentile cooties. None of those keep anyone from being stained. It's the heart that needs attention. Sin originates in the heart, not out there. Do you see the amount of personal responsibility that comes with this truth? When we sin, it's not someone else's fault. It's not our environment that makes us sin. We can't shift blame to our upbringing or to anything else. If we were all alone on a deserted island, we'd still sin, every single one of us, because sin is conceived in the heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, as the core of our being, drives behavior. The heart determines how we live. And according to scripture, our hearts are sick. And if our hearts are sick, look at the result. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. It says, none is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Back to our question. How is someone made unclean? Pharisees' answer, externally. Jesus' answer, the heart. Second question, how is someone made clean or righteous? Again, the Pharisees' answer, externally. Keeping made-up rules, avoiding certain foods. Jesus' answer, point two, the gospel. Well, I'm not going to do a ton here because the next section of Mark deserves its own full sermon next week. The very next section of text is an amazing test case for what Jesus just said. This unclean Gentile woman comes to Jesus and her daughter is made well, not through external righteousness, but through faith in Jesus. If we're Following Jesus' teaching here, and we understand that it's the heart that's defiled, how can we wash the heart? You don't wash the core of your being with soap and water. But here's the good news. The promise of the new covenant is this. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says, and I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God gives us a new heart. This is what's known as the new birth, being born again, being regenerate. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Jesus says, this is how this happens. It's a work of the spirit. And then he explains even more. John 3, verses 14 and 18. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man, referring to himself, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the the only Son of God. So we're given new hearts in the new birth, and that happens when we turn from our sin in repentance, heart repentance, and when we believe in Jesus, which also comes from the heart. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse uh, verse. Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe, where? In your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see that? Sin originates in the heart and then spills out of the mouth. And things like slander in our text today. But here in Romans 10, when God gives us a new heart, belief starts in the heart and then spills out of the mouth in confession. But the biblical answer for how we're made clean in the gospel is even better. It's the the greatest double exchange in the course of human history. Our hearts, as we learn in this text today, are, are filthy. Stained and soiled with sin. Every single one of us. But there was a heart that was pure. The heart of Jesus. He obeyed God perfectly in every single way. His heart was unstained and clean. He went to the cross as our substitute. Because only a perfect sacrifice would do for a holy God. Psalm 24 that we read earlier. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So that clean-handed, pure-hearted Jesus is the only one who could ascend and stand in God's holy place. He went there. He died for us. And when we repent and believe, Scripture tells us that we not only get a new heart, 
We get covered with Jesus' righteousness. That's how we're made clean. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here we go, verse 9. And be found in him, meaning Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see that? Righteousness. Cleanness comes by faith. Jesus lived righteously in every way. And when we have faith, when we believe, that righteousness gets placed on us like a garment. So in one crucial way, the Pharisees were kind of right. True righteousness, while coming from the heart, is external. It's an alien righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves. It's a righteousness that can only come from Christ. We sing a song here regularly. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. Friends, it's possible to look good on the outside and be completely broken within. I'm afraid that this isn't just a problem for the Pharisees and scribes. It's very much alive today. So how's your heart? That's the most important question any of us could ever answer. Trust Christ. Believe the gospel. Reject legalism. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. I'm going to close with this. But when the Pharisees heard that he, meaning Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's about your heart. It's about worship. Let's pray.